Good morning. Our reading today will be from Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you said, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let us pray. Dear Lord, please give Pastor Andrew wisdom and power to speak the truth of your word. Please give your church discernment and understanding leading to change and greater love for your glory. Amen. Well, our church theme this year has been the theme of strengthen, uh, that we do not simply want to be growing larger numerically, but becoming stronger spiritually. That it's not merely about seeding capacity, but also about sending uh, capacity, about coming alongside one another, equipping and empowering each other to live on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, 24-7, in whatever sphere of of influence uh, that you may have as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why our mission can be summarized as uh, multiplying, transformed disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, Our desire, again, is that we would be a discipleship factory uh, that is pumping out uh, God-loving, sin-hating Uh, Jesus-adoring, scripture-saturated followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That's that's the idea behind that theme of strengthen, and we've set some clear initiatives as a church on on how we're seeking to do that. Uh, One or a couple that I'm uh, especially excited about are in September, we're launching our men's and women's uh, ministries, and so we're looking forward to that as we seek to strengthen our discipleship in those uh, areas. <clears throat> well, the theme of strengthen has been strong in the book of Luke also. Uh, Jesus has very clearly defined for us what it means to be a disciple uh, in Luke chapter 6. 
In fact, he talks about in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, about being fully trained. And of course, that's the goal, that's the aim, that's the objective, and all that we say and do as a church is, is for myself and for one another that we're fully trained, that we are more and more and more increasingly over time looking and acting and thinking and behaving and all of that like Jesus Christ. That, it, that it's all about him and being transformed in that way. And a couple of weeks ago, we, we talked about strengthening our faith. Last week, uh, we, we talked about how to strengthen your compassion, upping your compassion game, right? And then this morning in, in the Gospel of Luke, as we look at this uh, section of verses 18 through 35, we're, we're talking about strengthening your convictions, in light of doubts, not being afraid to face your doubts. You know, doubt is a major issue facing many Christians. Many Christians struggle with doubt, but they're afraid to admit it. Afraid to admit their doubts. <clears throat> afraid to admit that sometimes you wonder is the Bible really true? Does God really love me? Does, does he really forgive all sin? Is there really a heaven? Is, is, is there really an eternity? Does, does God actually hear my prayers? A lot of Christians wrestle with those questions, but they're afraid to, to say them, afraid to admit them. And, and, and I get it because the Bible never speaks well of doubt. The Bible doesn't encourage doubt. The Bible speaks a great deal about faith and not having doubts. And so we tend to feel guilty even that we have doubts. We maybe question our salvation because we have doubts. How can I follow Christ and, and have doubts? Who, who wants to admit that? And it's very easy to think, man, there must be something wrong with me because I have these doubts. And I just want to encourage you this morning, if that's you and you have these doubts, and maybe they're different than the ones I've expressed, but I think many of us struggle with doubts, and if that's you, I'm so glad you're here. You're in good company. None of us are perfect, especially me. We want to come alongside you and encourage you and help you, and I hope that this text will do exactly that as we seek to strengthen one another and affirm and encourage one another in the things of the Lord. And so point number one as we kind of make our way through this text is, is simply this, never, ever, ever hesitate to bring your doubts to Jesus. Never hesitate to bring your doubts to Jesus. We, we see in, in verse 18 that uh, the disciples of John had reported all the things that were happening that Jesus was doing. Uh, we, we talked about that last week, the amazing raising of, of the widow's son to, to new life and how that spread through the whole countryside and all the region. And all everyone could do was talk about Jesus, did this, he said this, it's amazing, he teaches, he preaches with authority, there's nothing this guy can't do. And it makes it all the way to John, who is in prison and thank God for these faithful disciples of John who are willing to risk a great deal to go see him in the, in the prison underneath Herod Antipas who put him in prison. And they're willing to risk it all to go see him and keep him informed about what is going on in the life of Jesus. Great friends, great disciples, great men of God. But John, having heard this report, we read in verse 19, calls two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? The very next verse, those men are faithful, they go to Jesus, and they say to him, again, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for someone else? That sounds like doubt to me, doesn't it? John the Baptist had doubts. That's not unbelief. There's a big difference between unbelief and doubts. Unbelief is a, is a willful refusal to believe. You hear it, maybe even you see it, you experience it, but you willfully choose or refuse to believe. Doubt is very different. Doubt is where you believe, but you're still confused. 
You don't, you don't quite get it. You're not quite sure how it's all, how it's all coming together, why, why God is doing what he's doing, the way he's doing it. And so you struggle with doubt. And that's what we see with John. John is confused. John has some, some doubt pulling at his heart. He, he expects Jesus to be doing this, but Jesus is doing this. And it's caused him to doubt. Are you really the one? Or is it someone else? Now, who is John the Baptist? Remember, he's, he's very important biblically. We, we incurred, in, encountered him early on in the Gospel of Luke. If you remember that far back, we've been going through Luke for a while as we make our way verse by verse. It's probably a year or a year and a half ago uh, when, when we talked about John earlier on in Luke. Uh, remember that he was prophesied in the Old Testament. You can read about him in Isaiah and Malachi, that he's the one who was to come before the Messiah and prepare the way and, and build this supernatural highway of repentance uh, leading to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he was announced to his parents by the angel Gabriel, and uh, was, we were told through the angel Gabriel, among other things, that John the Baptist will be, quote, great before the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit before even from his mother's womb, and will go in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's pretty amazing. We also know about John the Baptist, that he's the one, when he saw Jesus, pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's also the one who, when he saw Jesus, said, I am unworthy for you uh, to, to, I'm unworthy to even untie your shoe. He's also the guy who baptized Jesus. So he's a pretty significant fellow. But now he is struggling if Jesus really is the Messiah. He has doubt. And he's not alone. If you make your way through the scriptures, you see a number of who we would refer to as heroes of the faith had a tremendous amount of doubt. Abraham, the father of our faith, had doubts. You think of Jeremiah, the great prophet, he had doubts. Moses was ready to quit on at least one occasion. The prophet Habakkuk certainly had his doubts. Job's afflictions that he went through made him doubt the, the goodness and righteousness of God. You have Elijah, who has the mighty victory on Mount Carmel, only to go into a deep valley of depression and doubts. The disciples struggled with doubt, right? The, they uh, had this large crowd following Jesus, and how are we going to feed all these? And Jesus feeds them with just a, a couple of loaves and fish. And then uh, a number of days later, same thing happens all over again. Huge crowd, how are we going to feed them? <laughs> doubt. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he had doubts when the angel Gabriel called, called to him and told him all that John the Baptist will be. Uh, he doubted. He did not, he did not have 100% faith and trust in what an, the angel Gabriel had to say. So I share all of that to say this morning that if you have doubts, and I have no doubt that there are those in here who have doubts, that you're in good company. I want you to know you're not alone. And I, I want you to be open and honest about them, just like John the Baptist is honest and open about them. There's nothing unusual about having doubts as a Christian. If you need to underline that idea, circle that idea in your mind, there is nothing unusual about having doubts as a Christian. It's a very common struggle. Again, even John doubted, which is startling to think about because, again, he's filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. He baptized thousands, including Christ himself, and he had doubts. Why? Why did he have doubts? Why does he question if Jesus is the Messiah? And as we look at our text, it, it does not explicitly tell us why. But I think we can narrow it down. I think we can, from context and knowing what's happening in John's life and in Jesus' life, I think we can nail down pretty certainly uh, what his doubts were or why he had doubts. And I think the, the reason why John had doubts is, is exactly this. Jesus is not doing what he thought he was going to do. That John had expectations for Jesus to do this, but Jesus does this, and John goes, what? He has doubts. He's confused. 
This, this, is, this is not what was expected. He's disappointed, really. These unmet expectations concerning Jesus. And honestly, I think that's one of the primary reasons why you and I struggle with doubt. We expect or hope or strongly desire that Jesus does this, but he does this, and we what? We doubt. Now, I'm not saying that's the only reason we doubt. There's lots of reasons why we doubt. Satan is certainly very good at tempting and confusing Uh, We can also get very trapped in sin, which causes us to doubt. There are lots of reasons why we doubt, but I think one of the major, if not the major reasons we doubt is we expect God to do this, and he does this. Unmet expectations, and it confuses us, which quickly leads to, maybe this isn't what I thought it was. Now let me show you that with the life of John. John the Baptist, remember, prepared the way for the Lord Jesus Christ, and he prepared the way uh, through a dynamic ministry of preaching repentance. Remember that in Luke 3? Powerful preacher, you brood of vipers, he says, right? He's fire and brimstone, preaching the strong message of repentance. This unrelenting message of repentance got him in trouble, Uh, He fearlessly confronts Herod Antipas, the the current Judean ruler of the day, which lands him in jail. So think about that. He's leading a dynamic ministry. He's pointing the way to Jesus, preparing the way for Jesus. Great crowds are following him. He baptizes the Messiah, and all of a sudden he's taken out of play, and he's thrown into a dark, damp small, little isolated prison. What would that do to you? Would that make you kind of scratch your head? Have some doubts? Have some wonder? Kind of be confused? I think this is especially hard on John because John, that guy is a wilderness guy. That guy likes to hang out out in the wilderness. He likes to walk, stretch his legs, and look up at the sky and, and admire the clouds and the sunshine and feel the breeze. And now where is he? In a small, isolated, dark, damp cell. I think that knocked the wind right out of him. That was not what he was expecting. To add to that, in Luke 4, I think it's verse 18, Jesus has just read the scriptures of Isaiah uh, in the synagogue, and he reads where he says, I have come to proclaim liberty to the captives. And we know that John the Baptist has his disciples coming and reporting all that Jesus says. And no doubt he's heard that the Lord Jesus Christ says he came to release captives. And John's like, well, I'm a good candidate. I'm in prison. I think there's struggle. I think there's doubt. I think there's confusion uh, going on there. And I I think this, I, I mentioned that John preached judgment On Luke 3, verse 9, you can see he preaches this. He says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In Luke 3, 17, he said about Jesus that his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff to burn with unquenchable fire. So John preaches about Jesus and pictures him as the one who is to come, the one who is to come to judge and punish and rescue and deliver. He's supposed to judge and punish enemies, i.e. Rome, and he's supposed to rescue and deliver his people, the people of Israel. But so far, Jesus has done anything but that. So far, Jesus' ministry has been mercy and compassion. So John is expecting judgment and fire. And Jesus is preaching mercy and compassion. And John goes, what gives? That is not what was expected. Jesus, you're supposed to lead armies against Rome. You're supposed to bring judgment. You're supposed to usher in the kingdom of God. There is zero evidence of that. You're doing the opposite. You're acting like a missionary. What is going on. John says that Jesus is not meeting his expectations. And so he doubts. Again, that's very similar with you and I. We have expectations. 
desires that Jesus will do something. Strongly hope that he will do something. And when God does something else, we become disappointed. Right? It's a slippery slope. It starts with expectations. Often unrealistic expectations or unbiblical expectations. Not always, but often. We have these expectations we expect God to do. He doesn't. He does something else. And immediately the heart goes out from you and you're disappointed. Right? And disappointment, if, not, if left unchecked, if not brought to Scripture and prayer, quickly leads to depression. And depression very quickly leads to doubt. So that's a struggle that we all have at different points in our life. Sometimes we become bitter, disappointed. We struggle because the Lord doesn't do what you want him to do. You, you pray a certain thing and, and God doesn't do that and you begin to question God's love or care. Or think about you're going through a severe trial, a severe hardship. You know, trials are, are a lot like being in prison, often. When, when you're going through a trial, it's a lot like John the Baptist when he's in that dungeon. You're isolated, or at least you feel isolated. You're kind of caught in your own thoughts. Everything seems to be going against you. You're like your own echo chamber, and it's very, very difficult and quickly leads to confusion and doubts. People wrestle with this. If God is all-powerful, why is there so much evil in the world? If God is so loving, why is there a hell? If God is so loving, why is there so much hurt and pain in this world? I expect God to heal my sickness. I expect God to give me children who are obedient. I expect God to give me a marriage that, that sings. I expect God to meet my financial needs. And when God doesn't do that, when God acts differently, we doubt. We're disappointed. And it leads to doubts. So we need to be very careful with our expectations, yes? Very careful with our expectations and, and God's will. Sometimes God is doing something very powerful, but we miss it because we're focused on, well, I wanted him to do this. I expected him to do this. He doesn't do that. We, we get mad and frustrated. But reality is God is doing this. He's at work. God is in the details. God is always at work for his glory and, and your good. We, we often want Jesus to take an instant road to, to our experience, to our satisfaction, to, to our being uh, happy. Uh, but God takes the long road, the slow road often, to grow us and transform us into his image. We need to be careful with our expectations. Not just our expectations on God, our expectations on our spouse, Expectations on your church, expectations on your pastor, expectations on your kids. Often we have these expectations, they don't meet them, and we get what? Disappointed and mad and angry and, and doubtful. So doubt is very common. Doubt is often linked to God not meeting your expectations. What do you do with your doubt? What do we do with it? Like I said, you should run to Jesus with your doubts. Never, ever, ever hesitate to bring your doubts to Jesus. Notice his response. It's very interesting. Before Jesus says anything, he first does something. They ask him the question, are you the one? And verse 21 says, in that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sights. And having done that, he then said to them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. We, we, we saw that last week. The poor have good news preached to them. So they run to Jesus with their doubts. Jesus' response is to do all these healings. And then he says, go tell John what you've seen and heard. And you've got to see the significance of that is that Jesus is quoting Scripture. It's straight out of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 19 says about the Messiah, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 6. If, if your Bible doesn't have these references in it, if you have a cross-reference Bible, my goodness, add them in. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, the prophet Isaiah says about the Messiah, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. 
the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's almost verbatim what you read in Luke 7, verse 22. And then in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, it says, The Lord has anointed the Messiah to bring good news to the poor. How does Luke 7, verse 22 end? That go and tell, Luke, go and tell John that I've been preaching good news to the poor. And so Jesus is giving rich biblical proof that he indeed is the Christ, the Messiah, as he performed miracles and preached the gospel to poor and needy sinners. He was doing everything he was promised to do. Jesus then says in verse 23, it's, a, it's something of a gentle rebuke. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You see, John had become offended by, by Jesus, offended by the way Jesus was doing things, and Jesus is warning him gently, don't, don't be offended by me and my message and my method. Don't be offended by my message and my method. He's also warning you and I, don't, don't stumble, don't be offended. When God does something different than you expect, don't stumble at that. Don't get angry about that. Don't, don't have doubts about that. God is still God. Jesus is still the Messiah. He's still the Lord. He's still on the throne. He's still working all things out according to his will and his purpose for his glory and for your good. He's still doing that. That hasn't stopped. He didn't do it the way you do it, but he sees the bigger picture. And he's at work in all these ways. That's what he wants us to see from verse 23. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Not offended by the way I do things. I'm at work. I'm at work. I'm at work. So what do you do with your doubts? You fight them. You fight them by running to Jesus. Without the slightest hesitation, John runs to Jesus with his doubts. It should be the same with you and I. If you have doubts, don't brood on them. That's what we do, right? We get these doubts and we just sit there and we brood and we linger and we turn them over in our mind over and over and over and over and it just gets worse and worse and worse. We, we play out worst case scenarios and, and, and it's amazing what we can come up with. It's amazing. And what we see John the Baptist model, what we must learn to follow is what you must do with your doubts. Don't brood on them. Don't linger on them. Bring them out into the open. Take them to Jesus. Take them to his word. See, the problem again is that Christians spend too much time doubting their faith. We spend too much time doubting our faith, questioning our faith, and what we need to do is run to Jesus with our doubts, and there we will find truth to overcome our doubts. <clears throat> On this side of eternity, our faith will be weak. It will never be perfect. It's always imperfect. We will have doubts from time to time as, as we live through life and ex experience things, but such doubts should never keep you from Jesus and his word. Those doubts should cause you to run to Jesus, to exercise your faith, to read the scriptures, correct your doubts, and grow in your faith and understanding of him. So maybe you're here this morning and you wonder, you doubt, you're confused. Well, does Jesus really forgive my sins? All of them? And scripture answers in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if you confess your sins... God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Maybe you wonder, does, does God really love me? You go to Scripture and you read in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Those are some pretty awful things. Right? I didn't expect that. I didn't expect tribulation and distress and persecution. This isn't what I thought I signed up for, God. Do you really love me? And the scriptures go on to say in Romans 8, 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We wonder, is, is, is God really sovereign? My goodness, this world just seems like it's, it's, it's hit the, the gas pedal on the highway to hell. 
How can things get any worse? How, how can these things be this chaotic? How can God be on his throne? And, and how, how can God be doing this? Is God really sovereign? And the scriptures answer again and again and again in so many ways that yes, God is absolutely sovereign. Listen, the most sinful, wicked, horrific, awful thing that we ever did was we took the Son of God and we nailed him to that cross. And scripture turns around and says, God did that. And so if God can take the most horrific, wicked, awful thing and say, that's sovereign, that wasn't an accident, that was intentional, and bring all the good that he brings out of that, my goodness, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over good and he's sovereign over evil. Because if God isn't sovereign over evil, he's not sovereign over much. Because there's a lot of wickedness and evil in this world. We have the scripture say in Ephesians 1 verse 11, In Jesus we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not your will or my will, his will. So what do you do with your doubts? You run to Scripture. You run to Jesus. Don't hesitate to do that. Don't sit on them. Don't linger on them. Don't get stuck with this echo chamber in your head and go deeper and deeper and deeper down, down that slope. No, you run to Jesus. You run to him. It's so tempting in seasons of doubt to let our emotions, our senses, our troubles become the foundation of our reality, but we have something better than our emotions and our feelings and our experiences. We have the written word of God. And that's our hope, that's our strength, that's our confidence. Well, point number two this morning is not just to run to Jesus when you have your doubts. Maybe you still struggle with that. I'm not sure I want to run to Jesus. What's he going to do? And I run to him. And so point number two this morning is Jesus has mercy on you when you run to him honestly and openly with your doubts. We see that in verses 24 through 30. I'm absolutely amazed by verses 24 and 30 because I just tried to put myself in Jesus' shoes. And what would I do? If, if someone who I counted as a great friend, or even someone who, who was a great friend in ministry, and maybe we labored side by side and, and, and did these things and had the same focus and same purpose, what would I do if all of a sudden that guy came to me doubting me and questioning me? That would hurt. And I think I very well would want to become defensive, right? Like any of us. If someone comes to you and doubts you or questions you or maybe even criticizes you, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to defend yourself, right? That inner lawyer is very good. And he speaks up and makes amazing arguments. <laughs> We're very good at that. Not Jesus, though. He, he's far from that. He, he turns around and commends John. It's amazing what he, what he does in our text. I, I think he does that for a couple of reasons. One is people in the crowd, they're following him, would have just heard John question Jesus. And so maybe Jesus is concerned about the crowd and what they now think about John. And he wants to make sure, no, no, John, John's on the up and up. He's good. But he also does it to teach us and show us. This is in here for our instruction so we can know Jesus is safe to go to with our troubles. He'll mercy on us with our doubts. So Jesus gets out in front and he tells us about John. He tells us, number one, that John is a man of conviction. <clears throat> Verse 24 says, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind, which, which is to say, did you go out into the wilderness to look at some guy who's fickle and vacillates and can't make up his mind and anything? No, that's not, that's not what you went. You went out there to see a man of conviction, a man who was arrested for condemning Herod for who he married. The guy has conviction. That's why he went out there. He went out to see a guy who's not a compromiser, who's steadfast. He doesn't bend. He's dependable. He's also a man of courage. Verse 25, he asked the crowd, what then did you go out to see? If not a, a reed chicken by the wind, did you go to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. In other words, did you go out in the wilderness to hear John because of what he said, because he was favorable with the politicians, because he said whatever he had to say to have nice clothes and have a nice house and a nice car? And so you, you tried to figure out how he does it, because if that's the way he does it, that's the path to success. I want that kind of life, so I'm going to follow John. Is that why he went out to see him? Of course not. John uh, was not spineless. 
John would preach the truth regardless of whether people wanted to hear the truth, and it led to him being anything but a man of wearing soft clothing and living in fancy houses. John is also a man of purpose. Verse 26, what then did you go out to see, if not those other things? Did you go out to see a prophet? And Jesus says, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, and he quotes Malachi, Behold, I send my messengers before your face, who will prepare your way before you. That's incredible. Not only was John a prophet, he was prophesied about. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. He's a man of purpose. He's on a mission. But that's not all. John is also a man of greatness. Jesus goes on to say in verse 28, I tell you, an amazing verse here, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So pick your biblical hero. Abraham, Moses, Daniel, David, Job. Pick, pick some of your biblical heroes. And Jesus says, nope, John is greater. John, John is greater. No one born of a woman is, is greater than John. Why? I would suggest to you it's not because of his achievements, as impressive as they are, but no one is greater than John because God gave him the most honored of all callings, and that is to prepare the way for the Messiah. That's what made John so great. But I hope you catch the point here. John is filled with doubts, and he runs to Jesus with those doubts, and Jesus doesn't attack him and go, well, what kind of Baptist are you? Well, he's tender with him. Even commends him. So that's encouragement to us. When you have your doubts, you run to Jesus, and he'll be merciful towards you when you're open and honest and authentic with your doubts. He will be. Maybe you go, well, he was like that with John the Baptist, but I'm no John the Baptist. You know what? You're something better. Did you catch what he goes on to say in verse 28? Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. John is a man of greatness. He's also a man of lowliness. that all those who are in the kingdom of God, and by the way, that's you and I, that's you and I, that's whoever have recognized their sin and the offense that it is against the Holy God. We sang it earlier, right? That opening line, I'm a sinner. I deserve death. I deserve damnation. I deserve God's judgments. But we recognize that Jesus, as great as my sin is, is a greater Savior, and that even though my sin goes deep, the blood of Jesus goes deeper and erases that stain, and in Jesus is found my salvation and my forgiveness and my hope and eternal life. And so I, place, I turn from my sin and I turn to Jesus. I place my faith in him. And when you do that, you enter the kingdom of God. You are in the kingdom Orangeville Baptist Church is the kingdom of God in this community. We are a representation of it. If you are in the kingdom of God, you are part of the fulfillment of God. John the Baptist was, was preaching about and preparing for it. He's about promise, 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 promise. Jesus is fulfillment. John the Baptist is, is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is, is the fulfillment. And therefore, Jesus is not saying anything disparaging about John the Baptist. What he's saying is, is the greatness of the kingdom. And that as great as John was in his ministry of promise and preparing, that pales in comparison to the greatness of the kingdom being in the process of being fulfilled through Christ and his ministry of healing and preaching. And so therefore, you and I, by faith in Jesus Christ, are no longer part of the promise. We are part of the fulfillment. And so you are greater than John, even if you're the least in the kingdom. That's the argument that's there. And it's amazing. If you ever stop and, and think, think to yourself, I know I did this as a kid a lot, and sitting in the Sunday school classes, and I'd, I'd hear about the, the great Red Sea crossing, and man, I wish I was there. I wish I could have done that. And man, I wish I was there to see, I don't know, Joshua make the sun's stop in the sky for however long he did that. And it's like, my goodness, I would have loved to have been there. How amazing that is. And you know what 
Moses and Joshua would say to you and I, I'll swap places with you. That's what they would say. Because they were looking forward to the promise. They were looking forward to the fulfillment. We are living in that today. And it's better than all that. That's what Jesus is saying. And so therefore, because you are by faith trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are, you are greater than John the Baptist, as great as he was, because you are in Christ and you are in his kingdom. And so therefore, if you have doubts, come to Jesus and he will be merciful to you. If he's that merciful and tender to John, who's preparing and promise, then how much more merciful and tender to us, who are part of the fulfillments? And so run to Jesus with your doubts, and he will deal with them tenderly. He is the friend of the honest doubter, not just the friend of sinners, the friend of those who doubt. <clears throat> and just to apply that in a different way, that should be true of you and I. That you and I should be the friend of doubters. That when people come to you and, and maybe open up to you and say, man, I'm, I'm just not sure about what Pastor Andrew just said about God being sovereign over evil. I'm just not sure when I read Genesis that I can buy it that it's 6,000 years and not 14.9 billion years. Or 24-hour days. All right? I'm just not sure. I'm not sure that God hears my prayer. I'm not sure that my sins are forgiven. I'm, I'm not really sure that Jesus is who he said he was. And you know what? I'm not really sure that he loves me because, man, I've gone through some awful stuff. And you should be the kind of friend when people open up that way to not be harsh, not look down on them, not judge them, not to say, man, you're an awful Baptist, but to love them, be merciful to them. Listen to Jude, verse 22. Jude, verse 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. Jesus is merciful to doubters who come to him genuinely openly. Are you? Jude 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Don't condemn them. Don't be severe with them. Don't harsh them. Don't judge them. Listen to them. Ask good questions about why they think that way. Remind them that the newest, weakest Christian, even with all these doubts, you're, you're still great in the kingdom of God. Remind them of the truths of Scripture. Listen, the church, Orangeville Baptist Church, is not a showcase for the strong. It's a hospital for the weak. All over social media, you'll see all these videos of all these body lifters flexing and all the shape that they're in, all these crazy things they can do, and it blows the mind what they can do. And sometimes I think people think church is like that. We're kind of strutting around, look how good I am, and, and, and all of this, and my great faith. And or at least that's how we perceive it to be. But reality is, if we were to enter into each other's lives, we all have pain, we all have brokenness, we all have hard things, we all have doubts. This is a hospital for the weak. We don't want you to stay weak. We want to help you grow strong. That's about strengthening, right? But if you're weak, praise God, you're here. You belong here. And we love you, and Jesus loves you, and we want to help you and encourage you. Well, point number three, expressing doubt is different than unbelief. <clears throat> Jesus has dealt tenderly with John the Baptist and his doubts. Now he's not so tender as he turns to those who continue to disbelieve. You notice in verse 29, the ESV, if that's what you have in front of you, that's what I'm preaching from, uh, the English Standard Version. Um, you'll notice with verse 29 and 30, they put that in parentheses. So that's an interpretation that they're making, that, that this is a parenthetical remark that Luke threw in there. Uh, it may or may not be. There's a lot of debate if this is a parenthetical remark, or if this is actually what Jesus said, or if this is how people responded to what he said. Um, if you want to talk about that more later, we can. It doesn't really pertain much to what we're talking about this morning, other than just to see that there's different responses to Jesus. Verse 29 says, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, those, those awful tax collectors, when they heard this, they declared God just, which is to say they agreed having been baptized with the baptism of John. So, so they heard all that Jesus said, 
And their response is to say, God is just, God is right. God is right, I'm a sinner. God is right, I need forgiveness. God is just, he's right. That's why we went to John and had the baptism of repentance. We believe that that's true. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So blessed are they that they don't stumble, that they're not offended by the Messiah. But not everyone responded that way. Verse 30 says, the Pharisees and the lawyers, the the big religious people of the day, rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Uh, So here we see, again, the the religious know-it-alls, people who are in church every Sunday or Saturday, synagogue, who should know better, who know the scriptures better than anyone else, who'd sit and debate the ethical and moral dilemmas and the theological dilemmas of the day, that they heard Jesus, and they heard John the Baptist, and they rejected the purpose of God, which is to say they did not think they were sinners. They did not think they needed his salvation. They didn't think they needed to repent. And which is also to say they're very, very offended. Remember I shared with you a while back, and remember you seemed to pick up on that, that a lot of people today, they like to say, I'm really offended by what you said. But let's get more biblical. What you are is you're convicted. You need to repent and get right with the Lord. Stop using that you're offended. It's not my goal to offend you, but the word of God convicts you. Work with that. Conviction oozes grace. Repent and believe and, and, and walk of him. Don't reject the purposes of God. But be like the tax collectors and, and the sinners of the day who heard the message and they believed. They recognized their sin. They did away with their pride and they trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus wraps it up with this very interesting parable Uh, One commentator I read called this parable the parable of the brats. Uh, I thought that was pretty good. I didn't put that in my notes. But the parable of the brats. Because Jesus says, I'll tell you about this generation. Verse 32, they are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. You say, he has a demon. Son of man came eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And praise God for that. You see, the truth is you can never please everybody. There's always some people who are not going to be satisfied. Oh, John the Baptist, I didn't like him. He won't eat or drink. Oh, Jesus, I don't like him. All he does is eat and drink. Never be pleased. We play the song for you, but you won't dance. Man, that's a good commentary in our generation today, isn't it? Well, I don't go to church. The the preacher preaches too long. Which, by the way, that's impossible. And you all say amen. You're not supposed to laugh at that. You're supposed to say amen. <clears throat> well, the preacher doesn't preach long enough. That music, music is too loud. It's not loud enough. Church isn't friendly. My church is too friendly. Church is boring. Church is worldly. No matter what. Find a way to what? Not be pleased, not be happy, to complain. Never realizing the problem is not the church, the problem is not Jesus, the problem is right here. The problem is the heart. And so Jesus ends by saying, wisdom is justified by all her children, which just simply means that God's wisdom is demonstrated in the changed lives of those who believe. But for those who see Jesus and they're not offended by him, but they recognize he is the Messiah and in him and him alone has found faith and salvation, forgiveness of sins. They're not offended by that. They run to him. They say, God is just. He is right. I am a sinner. I need a savior. And they trust in Jesus. Then wisdom will be, will be verified. Wisdom will come to be seen to be wise by her children because when they trust in Jesus, he'll change their life now and forever. That's what it's saying. It works the other way, too. I was thinking about that as I meditated on the text for this morning where it says, wisdom is justified by all her children. My goodness, foolishness is is also justified by all her children. All around us, we have people who have disregarded God and his word, utterly disregarded God and his word. They're extremely mad at you and upset with you that you would say that this is God's word. 
and hate just about 99.9% of everything I said this morning. So they disregarded God, and then the world falls to pieces all around us, and they go, well, what gives? <laughs> the world is filled with violence and stealing and lying and killing and worshiping of false gods. There's broken marriages, people indulging in their lust like you wouldn't believe, confusion about gender, confusion about sexuality, people getting drunk, people filled with anger and rage, anyone who dares to contradict them, the foolishness, the children of folly are, are alive and well. And how it calls upon us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to look at Jesus and not be offended by Jesus and to believe in him and to walk wisely and be children of wisdom. And so this text is challenging me and it's challenging you. Where do you stand? What do you think of John? What do you think of Jesus? Will you be like the complaining children wanting God to play by your rules? We see the justice of God and forgiveness of sin in Christ and Christ alone. See, Jesus is calling for a choice in this text. Are you wise or are you foolish? Are you offended by him or are you not offended by him? Do you have doubts? Will you take those doubts to Jesus? Are you rejecting God's purpose, trusting in your own good works? Are you a sinner who needs a savior? Will you be wise? Will you be foolish? That's what this text is challenging you and I with this morning. Where are you at this morning? Where's your heart this morning? Where's your relationship with Jesus this morning? If you have doubts, don't hesitate to run to him. He will receive you mercifully, tenderly. Don't reject him. Don't ignore him. Jesus is not the problem. The problem is here. And the word of God is a solution. This is where you find Jesus. This is where you find hope, your help, your strength, your all, your everything. Don't, don't, brood in yourself. Often when I counsel people, I'll, I'll remind them that the most influential person in your life is you. Because no one talks to you more than you. What are you telling yourself all day? Are you telling yourself this all day? Or are you your own echo chamber and, and kind of bouncing around the world's wisdom in your mind? What's ruling your thought life throughout the day? What are you thinking about when you're not thinking about anything? What do you think about when you go for a country drive on Sunday afternoon? What do you think about when you're in the shower? Right? What, what do you think about when you're not thinking? What are you telling yourself all the time? Is it the scriptures? Are you running to Jesus, thinking about Jesus? That's the solution.